right. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Good to see you. Thank you for that. And uh, I'm already wiped out. Scott usually gets this thing for me. So thanks a lot, Scott, for getting the uh, podium out for me. <laughs> it's Ray starting early. We're, we're in trouble here. We're in trouble. Hey, uh, I just want to say I, I finally got my snow, all right? And now it can, now it can go away. I got to shovel a little bit this week, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. And um, also, I don't know how many, how many of you guys have got hit by that bug. Has anybody? I, a few of you. All right. I know there's some families out. I know I got hit last week, and I just want to say how good God is. Uh, I tell you what, I was not feeling good before the service last week, and then I had a few people pray for me, and all of a sudden, boom, I felt great. And then... Afterwards, I got sicker than a dog for the next couple of days. But, but while I was preaching, God was just there for me, and, and the Holy Spirit showed up. Some people would say, but too much, because I, Scott said I preached for 40 minutes. I need to cut that down a little bit. So maybe the Spirit showed up too, too good last week. But God is good. Amen? Amen. Amen. And we've been going through Hebrews 12 and been talking about that unshakable life. We're going to be talking about being fearless this Week and how fear can hold us back from being that person that God's called us to be. And we've already talked about faith and forgiveness and freedom and focus and now fearless. The five F's. It kind of seems like one of uh, Ray's old seventh grade report cards back there, doesn't it? The five F's there. Uh, that... <laughs> <laughs> it was the greatest three years of, of Ray's life back there, seventh grade. <laughs> you, remember, you remember how those days would go, too. Uh, uh, you know, the, the bell would begin, and, and then the announcements would begin, and then we'd have the Pledge of Allegiance. You guys remember the Pledge of Allegiance? I don't know if you say the Pledge of Allegiance anywhere else anymore today, but uh, we always started with that Pledge of Allegiance, and... Um, and I don't know if you, you, you know much about the history, but the Pledge of Allegiance was written by Francis Bellamy back in 1892. He was a writer for the Youth's Companion, a, a magazine at the time. And he really wrote this pledge to be a pledge not for the United States, but for anyone who wanted it. And it read like this originally. It just said, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And, and those, those words, the flag of the United States, were added in 1923. And then, um, you know, it, it came out to, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And originally, whenever they would say to the flag, of the United States, they would hold out their hand kind of like this. They would have their hand on their heart, then they would hold out their hand. And you can imagine during World War II why they changed that portion of it, okay? All right? But they changed that. But then also, my most favorite part of, of the pledge, in 1954, there was a Scottish preacher named George Dougherty who had preached for years that it was kind of an injustice, it was ridiculous to omit the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And it was just, um, he thought that was the fact of manner or, or way of American life. And he felt like it needed 
to be in there. And it, and it really didn't gain traction until 1954. He's preaching in Washington, D.C. at a church that Abraham Lincoln would go to occasionally. And Dwight D. Eisenhower, the president at the time, heard one of his sermons. And in the sermon, he, he said this. He said, if you deny the Christian ethic, you fall short of the American ideal of life. We are under God. And, and uh, it was that week that a bill was presented was introduced to Congress to add that phrase under God in the, uh, in the Pledge of Allegiance. And Eisenhower signed the act into law on Flag Day, June 14, 1954. Now, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to go to a, a public school where they, every morning we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. But not only would we say the Pledge of Allegiance, but we would also say the Lord's Prayer every single morning. And we would say the Lord's Prayer, and then at lunchtime, whenever, before we could sit down to eat our lunches, we would say a prayer then as well. You know, God is good, God is great, and we thank him for this food, amen. And then we could sit down and eat our lunches. I don't know that too many public schools at that time were still praying before school or before lunches, but we were. And I remember my dad saying that he went to the, they, they were finally discussing, hey, I don't know that we can have prayer much longer. And so uh, they were going to have a school board meeting about it. And my dad decided to go to that school board meeting. At the beginning of the school board meeting, they said the Pledge of Allegiance. And he just wanted to show his support for prayer in school. He felt like schools were better with God in them than out of them. He felt like schools were better with prayer in than out. And so at the beginning, whenever they were saying the Pledge of Allegiance, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation. And then whenever it came time for under God, my dad yelled it out, under God, as loud as he could in that, in that arena. He wanted everyone to know where he stood and what he felt like was right. He said that he got quite a few glares whenever he did that, but he didn't care. And I don't know if he helped or hurt his cause by doing that, but I hope that I would do the same thing. And we're not talking about prayer in school today. We're not talking about the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, but I just give you that history lesson because the Pledge of Allegiance, because daily we're reminded in many different ways. And the Pledge of Allegiance is one of them, where we are from. We're reminded that we are citizens of the United States of America and we pledge our allegiance to this great country. And I feel like it's the greatest country in the world in spite of some of the problems that we possess. But there's a conflict, and Hebrews 12 has a different message. And we, will, we want to live in, if we want to live an unshakable life, we will do well to listen to these words in Hebrews 12. And in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, the writer of Hebrews wants to give us a picture of what it was like on that Mount Sinai whenever God gave him this, this covenant to live out, these laws to live out, this way that he wanted people to live. And he says this about that scene, and he's trying to give Hebrew people a history lesson here, and he says, hey, you have not come. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, 
to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses himself said, I am trembling with fear. The Hebrew writer is reminding the readers about their history, where they came from. They were the Israelites. They were God's covenant people, and they, re they received those laws on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. God is saying, hey, this is the best way to live. This is the way that I want you to do it, because this is the best way for you. But he was also making it very, very apparent that he expected them to be obedient to these laws. He expected them to follow these, these laws. It's my way or the highway. I mean, it's at Mount Sinai. It's a very sacred place in Israel's history. It's a place where God met Moses in a burning bush and told him to go tell Pharaoh to let his people go. It's where this covenant with his people is, is being made. This is the way to go where he has given them the Ten Commandments. And it's also where Elijah heard God in a whisper. And now as God is descending on Sinai in fire, a consuming fire, and the mountain is covered in smoke. And these people who have spent the last three, con last three days consecrating themselves, preparing themselves outside and inside for God to give them these instructions, these guidelines for right living and learning the potential of the great blessing, the great blessing behind obeying these laws and the great consequence that there is for disobeying these laws. You see, God is holy. And they know that. They know that if they see God, if they witness God with their eyes, they will die. If they touch even that mountain, they will die. And so they tell Moses, hey, we don't even want to hear his voice. You just let us know what he tells you. You relay the message. We don't want to die. And finally, in Genesis 24, they say, you know what? We'll do whatever he says. We will obey. We will follow. We will make him number one in our lives. We will, we will do our duty. We will pledge our allegiance to him and to him alone. And it says in, in Genesis 24, verse 8, it says, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, and tell me if these words aren't familiar to you. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you accordance to your words. And the covenant was complete. And that scene was designed to teach them some lessons. First of all, they're undeserving. They're undeserving. God is holy. We are lawbreakers. We can't even be in his presence because there is sin in our lives. We're unworthy. God is powerful and, and we're weak. We are unworthy to be in his presence. And he is untouchable. God is present, but there is a barrier. And there's been a barrier for thousands and thousands of years, and that's the people's sin, and they knew it. You see, Mount Sinai was, was ruled by fear. 
was ruled by fear. And for thousands of years and generation after generation, they figured out no matter how hard they tried, no matter how many qualifying rules that they made, no matter how much fear that they had in their hearts, they weren't going to live up to their end of the agreement. They weren't going to live up to their end of the covenant. And that's the story of Sinai. There is going to be sin. There is going to be a barrier between them and God, but there is a new covenant here in Hebrews. In Hebrews 9, it says this. It says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Christ came so that we wouldn't have to be ruled by fear any longer. And I think that that fear is something that we still struggle with today. We fear, and therefore we don't live out that faith that God is calling us to. We fear, therefore we don't experience the freedom that God has for each one of us. And we run this race with burdens on our back, entangled in sin. And the race looks far from the race that God has intended for us. I really feel like when I was 12 years old, my dad gave me a great gift. I had won this free throw contest two years in a row in our hometown, and I was really proud of the trophies that I received and how I got presented those trophies at the halftime of our varsity, the varsity basketball game for two years in a row and got my picture in the paper. And I knew that my dad was proud of me as well for winning these free throw contests. And it come the third year and I was ready to win this trophy again when all of a sudden I just couldn't hit a thing. And I can remember walking away from that free throw contest just so disappointed. And I, I, I thought the worst part of it of all is this, is that I was going to have to tell my dad that I didn't win the free throw contest. And I can remember, he was at the church, and uh, he was in the church gym because he had a church league basketball that game that day, and I remember I had to go tell him. I can remember the exact spot where I was at, and I told him, Dad, I, I didn't win. I didn't even place. And I can remember his words to me this day, to this day, because I remember just how I felt. I felt better after his words because he said, he said, Andre, and he said with a smile, you can't be on all the time. It's okay. And the words were meaningless. The words were meaningless, but it was the message. My dad's saying, it's okay. I still love you. I love you unconditionally. I'm still proud of you. It's okay to fail. That message of it's okay to fail was a great gift to me because here my hero, my standard for success, my standard of what it is to be a man is telling me it's all right if you fail. As long as you go out and, and try and I think that that's God's message to us as well. I mean, Paul, how many times did he boast 
about his weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I'm okay. I'm going to go out there and try anyways. I know I'm going to fail, but God, you're going to fill the gap. That parable of the talents where where the, they, they receive those talents from the master and then the master goes away and, the, and the, two, the two servants go out and they work those talents and they double their talents and the master comes back and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But the, but the servant that has one, he's afraid. And so he goes and he buries that talent in the ground. And whenever that master comes back and he sees it, he just buried that talent in the ground. He was afraid to lose it. He was afraid to do anything. He was afraid to try. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put it in the bank and for it to draw interest, but you did nothing. And I think that what God is saying here is it's okay to try and fail, but it's not okay to fail to try. I mean, what would it look like in your life what would your look, life look like if it was impossible to fail? If you couldn't fail, what would you do? What would you venture out into? What would you take a chance on? There was a guy by the name of Ryan Leake that put that to the test, that asked that question, what would I do if I couldn't fail? He was a Division Three All-American in college, but he was well past his college years. He, was about, he said he was 29 years old and played YMCA ball. And he said, you know what? If I could chase after my dreams and failure wasn't an option, I would, I would go after the NBA. I would play in the NBA. He said, I'm just going to do it. And he called his venture Chasing Failure. He didn't care if he failed in the end. He was going to go after his dreams. And so he got to be the best basketball player that he could be. He got stronger. He got faster. He got quicker. He got his jump shot to where he really wanted it. And then he emailed all 30 NBA teams. One NBA team says, hey, come on over. The Phoenix Suns. Jeff Hornacek was the coach at the time. He says, hey, come on over. We'll give you a tryout. And so he went that day. He was so excited. He knew that his dream might fail, but he was going to have a shot. At the end of the day, he might be an NBA basketball player. And he said that on this day, he started to realize that he just was a step slow. His jump shot wasn't quite as good as those other NBA players. He couldn't jump quite as high. He couldn't defend like the other guys could. And he said at the end of the practice, the coach gave him the option. He says, hey, you, you want to do a, the three-minute drill? He says, well, what's the three-minute drill? He says, you're going to sprint for three minutes. We do this at the end of practice. Uh, do it in upbacks for three minutes. It's a sprint for three minutes. He said that some of his guys, one of his guys can get 30. Up, up the court, six seconds. Back down the court, six seconds. Up the court, six seconds. He can get 30. He says most of his guards can get 26, 27. Most of his big men can get 23 or 24. He says, he says Ryan, do you want to do this? He says, yeah, I'm in it. I'm in it. That's, I'll do it. And he said that he did. He, he started running. He, he felt good right at the beginning. And then he said about a minute, minute and a half into it, he just hit a wall. 
And he said it wasn't just physical, but it was mental and emotional, emotional as well. He said he just felt the weight of failure coming over him. And then all of a sudden, Coach Jeff, Coach Hornacek started clapping him in. And then he said that all the guys stopped their practice right where they were at. And they also started clapping him in. You can do this, Ryan. Finish it out. And he said from that on, moment on, he started to realize where he was at. Because every time up and down the court, he was running over the Phoenix Suns logo. He said that Jeff Hornacek was his coach for that three minutes. And that for three minutes, Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire was, were his teammates. And he realized that him chasing after failure, he went so much further, did so many greater things than whenever he was just chasing after success. Here he was on an NBA basketball player, and for three minutes, he was an NBA basketball player. He set out to do something where failure was not a negative. And that's where he found success. And I'm just asking you, what would you... What would your life look like if failure was not a negative? What would you do if you could not fail? Would you write a book? Would you start a business? Would you make a phone call that's been long overdue? Would you go back to school? Would you share an idea? that you have? Would you take a stand? Would you join a gym? And how many of you would quit your job today if you knew that you could do something that would be more fulfilling to your life, more fulfilling to the calling you feel like God has on your life? How many of you know that you're just not running that race that God has called, that God has marked out for you, and you just need to get your eyes fixed and focused on him? And maybe that step is just joining a grow group. Maybe it's getting involved in church. Maybe it's just getting into God's word and taking that first step. Hey, this relationship that I desire to have with you matters. I've been making excuses for far too long, and I know that this fear is the only thing that's only going to bring regret and heartache. I know, God, that you made me for something more. In 1 John 4, 18, it says this. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect, is, is not made perfect the one, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And when fear rules, we can't love deeply because love means taking risks. When fear rules, we can't give gen generously because that will hinder our security that we have. When fear rules, we can't dream big because we won't ask that question, what if? Fear is a part of the old covenant. And on Mount Sinai, this is a new covenant and the Hebrew writer contrasts Mount Sinai with a different mountain. And here's what he says in verses 20 through, 20 through 24. He says this. He says, but you have come, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And there's a phrase in there that he uses three times. You have come. Where do you come from? You have come. I know that I've, I came from Albert Lee, Minnesota, where I was born in a holiday inn. It's a long story. I could tell you another time. I lived in Minnesota for 10 years, became a Vikings and Twins fan, and it hasn't been easy. But then we moved out to the great state of Ohio when I was 10 years old. I've loved Ohio. Grew up in Minerva, Ohio. Graduated from Minerva High School. Went to college in western Pennsylvania, and it's good to remember where we come from. It's part of our identity. Much of who I am today is because of where I come from. So where does the writer say that the Christians come from? The author says this, that we come from Mount Zion, God's spiritual kingdom. We come to the city of the living God. God is present, and there's no barriers. We come thousands and thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, not in fear, but in rejoicing. We come to the church of the firstborn. We own that birthright, that divine birthright from the Lord. We come to God, the judge of all, not something to fear, because he's our Abba, he's our father, he's our daddy, and he loves us, and he wants nothing between us, and that's why he offered his son Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And he makes that difference. He bridges that gap between us and God. It says in Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that sin separates us and God. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And in Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of, of that sin, what we deserve for that sin is death. And not a physical death, but a spiritual death. But it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, that sprinkled blood, forgiveness and redemption. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so what is he saying? Where do we come from? We come from him. And we come from heaven. And that's where we belong. I have a rope here today. We'll see how this works out here. All right. And this rope represents our life. Okay. You can see it's a pretty long rope. Hopefully it's a pretty long, long rope. All right. You were born. All right. And then maybe your first smile, your first Word. I think I told you a few weeks ago my first word was ball. Uh, your first steps. That's a pretty big day in your life. Uh, the first time you go to the bathroom on the potty. I can remember celebrating our kids. I don't remember that for myself, thankfully. Um, the first day of school. How big a day is, is that for you? Your first overnighter. Your first bike. I remember mine was a banana seat called the Desperado. I wanted a dirt bike so bad, but... Dad got me the Desperado banana seat bike. Your first A, 
your first F. Your second F, Ray. Your, no, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> All right. That's right. I'm in trouble. You have your first best friend. Might not be Ray right now. You have your first fight. Make your first honor roll. You get your first detention. You make the team. You get cut. You learn an instrument. Your music teacher tells you you should discontinue the instrument. That's my experience. Then puberty hits. Uh oh. Hormones. Your first crush. Your first job. Your first car. Remember, I got my first car, got on the road. And Born to be Wild got on, was on the radio. <laughs> Not good. Your first ticket. Your first date. Your first kiss. That shouldn't be on your first date either. Just, just. I remember Audra and I, we talked about our first kiss being on the day that we were married, but she couldn't help herself, so that didn't happen. <laughs> your first heartbreak. Graduation. You choose a career path. You leave home. You meet someone special. You realize that they're not as quite as special as you thought. You meet someone else that's really special. You tie the knot. You buy your first home. You start a family. Kids start to come, and pretty soon, they're graduated. You make some moves. This is a really long rope. <laughs> I told uh, Gary Denham to get me a long rope, and he's, he's done the job here. You have that empty nest syndrome, the golden years. And I could go on and on and on. I don't know how long this rope is. All right, well, here's the point. Here's the point. A lot of times we feel like we do have time. We have a long life. And it feels more like a marathon than a sprint, doesn't it? And in human terms, that seems to be true. But in God's terms, I want you to know that we're just passing through. And this rope definitely represents your life. But I want you to know this, that if this whole rope represented your life, this part right here is what represents your time here on earth. Just a short time in comparison to eternity. So small in comparison to the life that God intends for us to live forever with him. And a lot of times whenever we think of this as this is, just seems like a short time. It makes those things, those things in life that we get so bent out of shape, those trials that we have seem pretty trivial. 
And I know that whenever I was writing this portion of this sermon, I was sitting by my wife writing this section, and I just had to stop. I just had to stop and say, oh, I brought... You know I love you, right? Because we're not immune from having dumb arguments. You know you're beautiful, right? So many times we get caught up in this thing or that thing that happened right here in our life. And whenever we look at our life like, like this, it makes all those things seem pretty trivial. It makes us think that the only thing that really matters and makes us, helps us understand the only thing that really matters in life are those things that point us directly to life, that point us directly to Jesus Christ, that point us to being more and more like him. And to live in that life out that God has intended for us to live. And it should help us to want to point others to him as well. And understand how precious that time that we have is. To point our family to Jesus Christ. We only have so much time. To point our friends to Jesus Christ. We only have so much time. to point this world to Jesus Christ. We only have so much time. And, I, and there are good things in this life. And that's okay. But let us not forget how precious each second of every single day is and why we're here. And are we running that race that Christ has marked out for us? And if not, why not? Is the load too heavy? Is there sin that's entangling us? Is our focus not on Jesus Christ? Are we afraid? Are we afraid to be all in? Are we afraid to give up control? Are we afraid to take that first step towards freedom? Because we're not from this place. We're not from Columbus, Ohio. We're not from the United States. We are from heaven. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, our citizenship is not here. In Philippians 3.20, it says, for our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've shared that scripture with that teenager that's just trying to find their way, as well as that person that's on their deathbed, trying to navigate their way out of this world. C.S. Lewis, and I love these words out of mere Christianity, says this, it says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And for each one of us, there's a hunger inside of us that only God, only Christ can fulfill. And we don't need to be ruled by the temporary of this world, but rather the eternal that God has in store for us. And if we understand this, we won't be ruled by fear or failure because we know that God's got this. In Hebrews 12, it goes 12, 28 and 29, it, says, it goes on to say this. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably in, in reverence, with reverence and awe, for our, God, for, for our God is a consuming fire. 
And yes, we're unworthy. Yes, we're undeserving, but we're not unloved and we're not unwanted. In fact, with Christ and this new covenant, we're unstoppable. We're part of a consuming fire that cannot be stopped and it's raging on. And with Christ in this new covenant, we will be unshakable as long as our foundation is rooted in the kingdom of God. And our lives will be unshakable whenever we pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ and his banner of love. One kingdom under God. Indivisible. As long as we're the church and we're united in service and in love. In 2 Timothy, it says, for God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And if we want to have that unshakable life, if you want to make a difference in this world, then remember that we don't come from here. We don't belong here. And we won't stay here, thanks the Lord. We come from heaven, and that's where our hearts belong. We're a child of the Most High King, and he loves us, and he created you for a purpose. And he wants you to live that unshakable life, to live that fearless life, knowing that it's okay to try and fail, but there's no excuse for failing to try. We need to relentlessly pursue our faith, keeping our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And it's only through Christ that we can find true freedom. And that freedom can allow us to run that race that God has marked out for us. It's only through that freedom. Do you feel that freedom today? And if not, what's holding you back? Who's holding you back? And why are you allowing it? Call on his name today. In Romans 8, it says this. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for the sake, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. And all these things. We are more than conquerors. You are more than a conqueror. Through Jesus Christ, who loved you. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demon, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? I pray you do. Because if... You believe that. You cannot be stopped. You cannot be shaken. And your foundation is firm in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's somebody here today that's never said yes to Jesus, never put him first, never been all in. And I say overcome that fear today and experience that freedom. There's nothing greater and a hundred years from now, that's the only decision that's ever going to matter is who do you say Jesus Christ is? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? He loves you and he's got a great plan for you both in this life and the life to come. 
And I urge you to come forward and talk to, talk to us. Say, how can I know that I am saved? We'll point you to scriptures that you need to be pointed to. And he loves you. Put him first in your life today. Maybe you just need prayer. There's going to be some prayer partners down here at the, uh, down at the front after the service. Or maybe this is your first time here. And I just say welcome. I hope that you've been blessed today because you came. I hope you get to know these great people of East Point. They're loving and good people. They were put here for a reason. So uh, you can meet at the five and five. This is your first time here. We got a gift for you as well. So let's pray here. God, I just thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you that we can come into your house and worship you to tell you how great you are, to come together as your people, as your church, as your team, so that we can encourage one another and keep each other accountable as well. I pray that each one here today has been blessed by your words, that we understand that we do not have to be ruled by fear any longer. For you've gone ahead of us through your son Jesus Christ to make a new covenant that is ruled by freedom, that is ruled by forgiveness, that is ruled by faith, and we're just passing through this world. And our citizenship really belongs with you in heaven. And we eagerly await that day when we can be with you. But we know that you have a plan for us here now. And I pray that you give us the strength to live that out. God, you're good. You're good all the time. We thank you again. I just pray a blessing on each one here today. that they feel you this week, that they walk step with step with you, and they shine bright for you as well. God, you're good. You're good all the time. Thank you for all you do for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You have a great week.